This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is New Books in Media and Communication, a podcast channel in the New Books Network. I'm Jeff Pooley from Muhlenberg College, uh, the co-host of the channel, alongside my colleague, John L. Sullivan. I am thrilled to have Brooke Duffy, author of Remake, Remodel, Women's Magazines in the Digital Age, on the podcast today. Brooke is assistant professor at Temple University's School of Media and Communication. Welcome to New Books in Media and Communication, Brooke. And Thanks for taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you, Jeff. I'm really excited to be joining you today. So Remake, Remodel, Women's Magazines in the Digital Age was published by the University of Illinois Press in 2013. And the book traces the upheaval in the women's magazine industry uh, in an era of media convergence and audience media making. Duffy is especially interested in the experience of writers, editors, and, and others who produce women's magazines. How are they coping with new competition, more intense work routines, and the imperative to produce and engage across a range of non-print media platforms? Questions of identity, what does it mean to be a magazine writer in the the iPad era? What are the stakes for gender identity as this female-focused genre adapts to digital workflows? These uh, identity questions thread through the book. And to get at them, uh, Duffy conducted in-depth interviews with Dozens of editors, publishers, interns, business side workers, most of them at the big three magazine publishers, Hearst, Condé Nast, and Time Inc. So she traces the history of women's magazines, as well as the history of scholarship on these magazines, but the bulk of the book explores different facets of workers coming to terms with the digital tsunami, uh, including changes to gender makeup of the workforce, Uh, shifts in the industry's attitude toward its audience, uh, the complicated rivalry, um, dismissal, and oddly enough, embrace of fashion bloggers, and uh, and even the tension between medium-specific traditions and the push to spread the magazine, which is sort of now reimagined as a brand, across a range of platforms. It's really a superb book, which I immensely enjoyed, and I'm just thrilled to have you here to talk about it. Thank you so much, Jeff. So, okay, just to start off, uh, you know, could you say something about how you got into media and communication studies? And, you know, how about how you got into the the study of women's magazines in particular? Yeah, absolutely. So as an undergraduate, I I initially thought that I wanted to pursue a career in the media industries. And um, I thought a little bit about a journalism degree and eventually decided to complete my bachelor's degree in advertising. 
And I took a lot of, of courses, what we might think of quite of the creative production courses. So copywriting, media planning, and so forth. But the ones that really spoke to me are the critical ones. So we had to take courses um, on media culture and identity. But most especially, I took a course on the political economy of communication. And this course in particular really sparked an interest in the commercial forces that sort of drive our media content. And it made me realize that I was much more interested in studying and learning about these industries from the position of, of a researcher rather than as a producer. And so during graduate school, I was really fortunate enough to work with an advisor, Joe Turo, who showed me the, the real value of studying media industries and, and how they shape society's entertainment and information agendas. And so through graduate school, I conducted a little bit of research on the TV industry and the advertising industry, but I really, I just really kept coming back to the magazine industry. And I think that what's so interesting about the women's magazine industry in particular is that there's been this incredible body of literature on the content of women's magazines, as well as on the readers of women's magazines. But there just hadn't been a lot done on the producers and the production culture of women's magazines. And the last book-length study that was produced was done in the early 2000s. So given that fact that you, you know, worked with Joseph Turow and there was this dearth of material on the production side of, of magazine research, mm-hmm. um, you know, that obviously raised lots of methodological challenges. I mean, there's a reason why there wasn't that much, right? That, sure. in, in part because production side research is very difficult. And uh, it's one of the reasons why it's so rare. And so, I mean, most of your research in the book that you draw on trade press accounts and a bunch of other sources is drawn from these um, rich interviews with magazine industry insiders. And so, you know, what kinds of challenges did you face in just getting them to talk to you in the first place? And then, you know, beyond that, getting them to talk about Mm -hmm. something as, you know, anxiety inducing as the digital transition. Okay, so that there's absolutely this assumption that it's it's very difficult to do industry research because of the challenges of access. And, you know, to a certain extent, I absolutely believe this is true. It's, it's much easier to analyze the text or to talk to readers rather than going into the industry and, and talking to individuals about things that may be protected, whether because of you know, legal issues or their own need to kind of protect their professional identities. And so I tried a, a variety of strategies in order to just kind of break into these industries and, and, and talk to people. And the first thing I did was trying cold calling. As you can imagine, that got me nowhere. I mean, I, I, you know, I realized these are people that are incredibly busy. And so I did a little bit of detective work to find their email addresses and, and kind of, you know, thought carefully about the, the approach I could use to send these people a quick email that would attract their attention and, and get them to kind of open up to me. And so, you know, I, I just framed the project as really interested in, in talking to them about how they were adapting to this digital transformation. And so that's kind of the practical aspect of it. You know, another strategy I used was rather than working from the bottom up in terms of organizational hierarchies, I thought it was very important to start to talk to some of the top industry leaders, because I felt that these were the people that had really seen these changes from the bottom up. 
And I was incredibly lucky because, you know, despite their busy schedules, I was able to talk to people like Hearst Editorial Director, Ellen Levine, Joanna Coles, who is now the editor-in-chief of Cosmo, Jane Jameson, who's the publisher of Seventeen. And, and these people were incredibly generous with their time and insight. And I think one of the reasons is because, you know, they're struggling to try to understand these changes too. So in that sense, they were very willing to share their experiences with me in, in hopes of coming out of this with kind of a larger understanding of what the industry was going through. Um, you know, that, that's not to say that there weren't people who were, you know, unwilling to speak with me or kind of had this fear that maybe I would be, you know, sharing some kind of trade secrets. So I think as a researcher, you, you have to be persistent. And of course, you have to do your homework. Great. Well, it was really remarkable how open and candid even those top editorial folks were in the interviews that you quote throughout the book. Um, and speaking of the book and its opening, you uh, have this lovely anecdote with a, a discussion of a viral video. Uh, it's a cute toddler who seems already familiar with an iPad who is struggling to make sense of a print magazine, right? And uh, I think the video might be titled uh, something like, a magazine is an iPad that does not work. Yeah. Uh, right? And so in a nutshell, is, this is the crisis that the industry is facing and that you're tracing in uh, the book. Uh, but initially, in the first chapter, you fill in some of the backstory, uh, in part by talking about the way these magazines weren't just in their kind of history from the late 19th century onward, gendered in their content uh, and in their readership, but also in their writing and their editing. Uh, so early in the history, and for reasons that uh, weren't necessarily progressive, women were recruited into important editorial positions. So maybe you could say something about how and why this came about, especially given that the rest of the media world was male-dominated. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the arguments that I really wanted to make in this book is that Women's magazines are not just magazines for women, meaning, you know, they are consumed by women, but, but they're also of women. And I think there's this really interesting history of the, the gendered production culture of the women's mag in industry. And I think this sometimes gets underplayed. And, it, you know, as, as you correctly point out, you know, it's not necessarily progressive, but, you know, we can trace the history to the late 18th century of women being invited into magazine workspaces as editors, as writers and artists and so forth. And one of the reasons this was done was quite simply commercial. I, you know, the male publishers, you know, as you point out, this was a media industry that was heavily male dominated. These male publishers realized early on that in order to connect with female readers who were seen as the, the primary household consumers they needed to have a kind of female voice. They wanted to speak to these consumers, these female consumers in a way that really connected with them, with their challenges, with their struggles and so forth. And so initially a few of them, um, they would actually, these male publishers would adopt these female names. So um, one of the publishers used the name Beulah Kellogg and, and wrote under that, but I think they, they realized, you know, that that didn't work. And so they began hiring more and more women into the production spaces. But it really wasn't until the the late 20th century and around the time of the 1980s where women were granted access to some of the top editorial positions. And certainly the publishing positions came much later. Great. So this actually ends up setting up 
the third chapter really well. I'm going to skip over the second one because of time constraints. Um, but in that chapter, I'll just say briefly for those listeners who haven't had a chance yet to read the book that that second chapter sets the stage for the industry's current crisis and introduces readers to some of the changes that have taken place um, in the last couple of decades at these big magazine companies, notably Hearst, Condé Nast, and Time Inc. But let me turn to that rich third chapter of the book, because in some ways it's directly related to uh, the, the historical story you just told. That chapter, by the way, is just filled with fascinating and revealing quotes from these interviews uh, from across the kind of editorial and business side. But you talk about in that chapter the how the magazine workforce is changing in a couple of different ways. I mean, first, you're talking about how the existing editorial staff are basically being asked to be Jackson Jills of all trades. That is mm-hmm. um, asked, asked to you know write for different platforms with never ending deadlines. They're they're being uh, asked to rework prose and art for different digital platforms. Um, and so that's one big change that they're coping with, right? But the other big change that you're talking about in this chapter is that each of the major titles and the companies have recruited digital specialists of various kinds um, that have been brought in. And so, you know, we were talking about how the writers and, and some of the editors at women's magazines uh, for a long time have traditionally been female. Um, uh, how has the shift to the digital, particularly this kind of second process of, you know, new folks coming in from the outside begun to change the gendered makeup of the magazine workforce? And, and you know, why does it matter? Yeah, Jeff, as you, you know, as you just pointed out, there's been a great deal of restructuring over the past few years. I mean, certainly not just in the magazine industry, but, but across what we might think of as the traditional media companies. And it is making these already precarious career fields ever more challenging, ever more unstable. And so in the women's magazine industry, I found that in order to adapt financially and kind of grasp for a financial lifeline, these companies have been moving out of editorial spaces and into more digital and tech development. And, you know, as as consumers, we've seen many of these changes. The fact that Cosmo now has an application, the fact that Redbook now has a website, an iPad app, you know, so, so forth. And so... There's always these various tactics to move into digital spaces, not just move into them, but kind of be the the first on the scene. And as a result of this, as you might imagine, companies are trying to strategies. The first, as you mentioned, is this sort of being Jackson Jills of all trades, which is just getting the people who are currently working in there to work around the clock in hopes of making things work. But I think the reality is, not everyone has this digital skill set, specifically those who are coming from the editorial side. And so the other strategy they have turned to, which as you mentioned, is, is to integrate digital specialists into the culture of the magazine. So they're bringing in application developers. They're bringing in people who have an understanding of you know, how to get content to flow easily across the iPad and across the web spaces and so forth. They're bringing in people who understand social media really well so they can make sure that they are, you know, being up to speed on, you know, whether it's Pinterest or Instagram or, or Twitter, whatever it may be. But one of the things I notice, and, you know, one of the things that concerns me is the fact that many of the people being brought in are male. And, you know, the reason, of course, is, is the larger problem of this assumption that men understand the technological aspects. And, you know, I emphasize that this is assumption. This is certainly not the reality. 
but I, I think the implication is is that we're seeing more and more men being brought into these spaces that were historically kind of safe spaces for women. And, you know, in one sense, it's a larger problem in terms of the gendered nature of the technology fields. I mean, that's one problem, but thinking about the types of content that's being produced and, and, you know, the, the disparity between who is overseeing and producing this content versus the actual readers and consumers of this content and, you know, what, what that might mean for the future of these magazines. Well, that segues really well into the the next, the fourth chapter of the book. And it was one I really loved. It actually tackles an old media research question, you know, um, media creators knowledge about or, you know, image that they have of their audiences. And in this chapter, you highlight a paradox that, that seems to exist among the magazine workers you interviewed, which is that especially on the creative side, they have access in theory to more data about and kind of engagement with the audience uh, than they ever have in the past Mm -hmm. Um, on the one hand, but they also seem to in practice when you interviewed them, treat their audiences, especially their kind of non print audiences, the, the, the perhaps larger online community as a kind of mystery. Right. Um, So you bring up a bunch of themes in this chapter, uh, but maybe you could talk about this paradox between the, um, magazine workers kind of access to finely detailed demographic data on the one hand uh, and kind of uh, a sense of mystery around who their audience is on the other. Uh, You know, you mentioned search engine optimization as one site where this paradox plays out and also content syndication. So anyone who's taken a media studies course knows the story of how the rise of television impacted the magazine industry. And so Mass circulation publications like Time and Life and the Saturday Evening Post were supplanted by niche-oriented publications. And, you know, over the decades, we've seen the growth of niche publications that are reaching smaller and smaller audience segments. And, of course, you know, this is a way not just to reach consumers, but also to advertisers who are interested in targeting these consumers. And so having a, a very clear sense of who their audience is has been a staple of women's magazines for decades. You know, in talking to them, they all had, you know, a clear sense of who the the print audience is, both in terms of their demographics, but also their psychographics and the types of products they liked and so forth. But one of the things that I found really interesting was that the movement to digital content spaces has actually confused them a bit in terms of who their audience is. And you know, I think we might expect it to be the opposite because we're in this moment of big data and it's very easy to have a, a clear sense of who the individuals are that are on your coming to your content sites. And so despite this, despite the fact that it's very easy to know certain types of individuals or very granular data, the individuals I spoke with did not seem to have a clear sense of who the audience was for their web properties. And one of the reasons is, as as you mentioned, you know, the the growth of search engine optimization and content syndication and, you know, now the fact that more people are coming to these sites from social media or other sources. And so just to give you an anecdote, I was speaking to um, a digital specialist from Hearst and, you know, he said, well, sure, we have a very clear sense who reads Red Book Magazine, but, you know, I doubt there's more than five people on a given day who go and type in redbook.com. 
you know, he said, what happens is people go to Google and type, you know, how do I get red wine stains out of white carpet? And that's how they enter the site. So, you know, that's kind of the, the emphasis of, of search engine optimization. And, you know, certainly we, we know this is happening, but I think it presents a particular struggle for these magazine producers because they're trying to negotiate the tension between capturing, you know, their loyal audience, the ones who may actually go to the Red Book site, versus capturing a large audience. So people on, you know, coming to the site through Google and other side doors. And so in, in speaking with people throughout the organization, I mean, there were very different senses of who their audiences were. I mean, you know, in some cases we would say, well, okay, well, we think that the, the website reader is maybe five years younger, or maybe the website reader is a little more liberal or whatever it may be. But this to me really raises questions about how they are producing content when they're not even sure who the audience is, as well as how it overlaps with the traditional print publication. And again, as I said, you know, I, f- I found this really interesting given that the narratives we currently hear circulating that, you know, it's so easy to know everything about audiences online and, you know, sure that's true, but I think it's, it's a lot harder understanding them as a, as a mass. And so another facet of that challenge is that, you know, the same readers who have like stumbled onto Redbook from say a Google search um, are also lots of them anyway, kind of making media themselves. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and they're in the media production business. Uh, and so in this next chapter, you actually address that side of the audience question. Um, and it's fascinating. You tell the story of how rather than viewing the digital audience as a threat, though they have complicated attitudes toward their web audience plainly, um, these magazine brands have at least part of the time embrace uh, user-generated content, You know, encouraging on their web properties, comments and photo sharing and other kinds of engagement. Uh, and you even talk about how these magazines explicitly lean on gendered notions of consumption um, and community to build up these ties to the audience. Uh, so uh, th- this is a piece of this fifth chapter. You also, in the second half of the chapter, which was my favorite part of the whole book, you talk about another side of the industry's adaptation to and struggle with the uh growth of user-generated content. And that is the, um, you know, the, the way in which these magazine makers are dealing with fashion blogging in particular, mm-hmm. uh, right? And so can you talk about how magazine workers have had a kind of double-sided response to the rise of fashion blogging? Um, on the one hand, kind of conducting boundary work, but also in other instances, trying to kind of incorporate fashion bloggers. Yeah, so certainly, I mean, one of the things that most magazine producers acknowledged is the incredible amount of competition in this era of digital and social media, you know, where ostensibly anyone can be a media producer. And, you know, I, I believe this idea of kind of, you know, quote, anyone is, is overstated. But I use the case of fashion bloggers to explore how producers are responding to various threats coming from outside the industry. And, you know, the case of fashion bloggers really presents itself as a challenge to magazine producers' notion of professional identity. I mean, you know, they have historically been in the business of being these cultural intermediaries. They're the ones sitting in the front row at Fashion Week. They're the ones that are producing content on fashion, beauty, home decor, and providing kind of a a unique editorial or even authoritative voice to their consumers. And, you know, over the past decade, we've seen the growth of fashion blogging. 
And so one of the things I, I really wanted to understand is how are they adapting to this challenge to their professional identity? And in the case of fashion blogging, I think really gets to, as you pointed out, kind of this, this two-pronged approach in responding to this, but trying to maintain competitive. And again, as I said, this moment of digital and social media. And so one of the, one of the things that I learned that magazine producers are doing is to kind of challenge this narrative that, you know, quote unquote, anybody can do it. Anybody can create content. Anybody can be a fashion blogger. And so they really seem to be kind of shining a spotlight on their own expertise and suggesting, you know, this is not an industry of just fun and frivolity, but it's, it's a space where people are professionally trained, have worked for years, have done, you know, hard work and, and pay their, their dues to kind of join the ranks. And so, you know, whether this is a reality TV series designed to, to showcase the energies and work of traditional media producers or a profile in the media. I mean, I think, I think we're really seeing this kind of idea that the boundary around the profession is, is much firmer than, than we might think. And so, you know, I, I think that's one strategy they're doing. But at the same time, you know, I, I noticed they also have begun to really incorporate various fashion bloggers and, and social media content creators into their branded spaces. And, you know, this is, from my perspective, a brilliant strategy because what it does is it brings the fashion bloggers' audiences onto, you know, whether it's Glamour.com or Cosmo.com or whatever it may be. And it also kind of perpetuates this idea that, you know, we're social media savvy, we love our consumers and, and so forth. And so over just the past few years, I mean, there, there's been, you know, almost all major magazine companies have launched some kind of initiative where they have fashion bloggers producing content, they have a fashion blogger contributor network. Just maybe two months ago, Teen Vogue launched something called the Instalist Initiative. And so they, they took the girls with the highest Instagram followers and incorporated them right onto the, the Teen Vogue site. And what I thought was so interesting about this is, you know, there, there was um, some coverage of this in the press, and I ended up speaking with one of the executives there. And he said that the girls weren't getting any money for this. I mean, even though, you know, they're, they're actually bringing their, their social media communities onto the site, they're not getting any money, but instead they're getting paid in what he said is exposure. And I, I think it really goes to, you know, some of the, the larger narratives about branding practices in this age of social media. Well, I mean, throughout these chapters, you've been kind of chronicling the struggles that magazine workers all the way up through the editorial chain have uh, been facing as they've gone through this digital transition. And, uh, you know, they've adapted in ways like you've described, including in some cases, em embracing Instagram wonders and, and paying them an exposure. Mm -hmm. uh, but also, you know, by kind of trying to maintain the distinctiveness of the magazine tradition in some way, like, you know, there's been a kind of tension. And so in this last chapter, you take that tension and make it your focus. You're interested in, you know, the discrepancy between the, the, the magazine writers faith in maybe kind of loyalty to the magazine standards, including editorial standards and sort of the traditions of the women's magazine in particular on the one hand, and all of this exuberant rhetoric that they are greeted with and sometimes speak themselves around being platform agnostic about the way in which all of their content is supposed to flow seamlessly across 
the the magazine, which is now kind of a brand, not a magazine. Yeah, um, it's various outlets. So whether those are like uh, media uh, um, online or tablet apps or um, on the mobile space, and so right. I mean, you bring up this hilarious uh, index of of this tension in the renaming that took place of the Magazine Publishers of America, which is the industry group that represents uh, magazine publishers. And they apparently kind of adopted a new name, uh, which is mm-hmm. the acronym MPA, followed by a dash, the Association of Magazine Media. And so, you know, right, can you talk about this gap between, on the one hand, the sort of the rhetoric of cross-platform branding, and and then the, the problems that the, the workers in the industry are actually facing, especially on uh, the creative side? Sure. I mean, I, I talk in the book about convergence, both as kind of this, this buzzword, but, but also an industrial response to the various economic and technological challenges that producers are facing. And I, I think there's this tendency, as you point out, for those both outside as well as inside the industry to really embrace this idea of convergence, the idea that magazine content flows easily across platforms. When you use the term platform agnostic, and that came up in interviews, you know, this idea that it doesn't matter what platform it is, content is king. And, you know, there's definitely a lot of enthusiasm surrounding this narrative. And, you know, we can understand why, because it suggests that the industries are very nimble and, and willing to change and so forth. But one of the things that emerged from my interviews is that producers tended to cling, you know, rather tightly to, you know, what we can think of as medium specific practices and conventions. And in the book, I recount the story of one individual and she went from producing content strictly for online, which she said, you know, she really enjoyed. It was, it was creative and had the flowery language. And she thought it was kind of a, you know, the, the beauty of language. She went from that to being asked to produce content for the, the website. You know, the content on the website, of course, we know is shorter. It's clear. It kind of loses some of the, the beauty and essence of magazine language. But then she also said to me, she's like, you know, I, I like producing content that I think the audience wants, not what L'Oreal wants to put a lipstick next to. And I think this really gets to the idea that increasingly... You know, we're seeing this in women's magazines, but also in traditional sites of journalism. Um, The fact that companies need to be much more willing to accept advertising, whether it's, you know, native advertising or affiliate links or, or sponsored content. And so we can think about this in terms of, you know, the, the ethical reasons, but also, you know, it it was just very interesting for me to find out how producers you know, are very frustrated that they are being asked to think across platforms when they have been really indoctrinated into the culture of print. And so the people I spoke with had, as I mentioned, you know, a very clear sense of what the print product is and really saw this as different from what the digital product is versus what the application product is and, and so forth. And there really just emerged this tension between sort of these, you know, industry claims, again, of platform agnostic and and content is king and convergence. And the realities of the profession where people have been trained in this medium-specific convention and are really struggling to to lose sight of that. That comes across so clearly throughout each of the chapters in the book. There's this sense in which the magazine workers that you're studying have 
been asked in the course of a few years to change their identities overnight, and it's not quite working. Um, they're almost being asked to voluntarily embrace schizophrenia, um, mm-hmm. which, which you know must be, if nothing else, anxiety-inducing. Um, as as the industry you know continues to go through massive change, so uh, you know I really encourage those of you who haven't had a chance yet to read Brooks' book to. Uh, Get a copy. Um, there's so much that we didn't get to cover in the short interview. Uh, the book really does an amazing job of telling the story of how workers are coping with this, you know, new world of magazines without the magazine. Uh, and um, there's a richness that we couldn't capture um, that that's often in the words of the folks who Brooke interviewed. Is there anything though that we didn't get a chance to cover that you think is important? In one sense, it's a very auspicious moment for scholars of media and culture industries. I mean, that there's an incredible amount of work that has come out just in the last few years on creative workers and their products, both in traditional and digital media industries. But I think a lot of times there's this tendency to sidestep social positions, you know, lo- lo- overlooking the importance of gender, race, and class and the ways in which they, these may be actually exacerbated as we move into a new era of media technologies and economies. And, and so I think I just want to reinforce the, the critical importance and, and, you know, the need to foreground these issues, you know, as we're witnessing kind of this rebirth of media production or media industry studies. Great. And speaking of media industry studies and the kind of flourishing of scholarship on, on those issues, I mean, what about you? Are you uh, working on a project related to this one. Do you have another project in mind in this general area? Um, yeah. So, it, you know, it brings up something we talked about a little bit earlier, which is fashion bloggers, part of this more widespread category of digitally enabled cultural producers. And my latest book project focuses on the experiences and aspirations of female cultural producers particularly those that are using social media in hopes of pursuing career-related success. So whether by starting an entrepreneurial venture or getting access to a traditional media industry. And I think in one sense, you know, there's this kind of assumption that these women are empowered by the chance to gain access to various career fields, but at the same time, you know, they're, they're promoting goods that remain heavily anchored in gendered cultures of consumerism. And, and so I've been conducting interviews and doing some participant observation in hopes of kind of teasing out this tension. That sounds like a fascinating project uh, and uh, best of luck with it. And thank you so much for taking the time to talk about Remake Remodel and congratulations again, Brooke, on what was just a superb book. All right, thank you so much, Jeff. It was, it was quite a pleasure to talk to you this afternoon. Thank you.